This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Nora Jaffrey about her wonderful book, Reproduction and Its Discontents in Mexico, Childbirth and Contraception from 1750 to 1905, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2016. Welcome, Nora. I'm so excited to have you here today. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I wonder if you could begin this interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to study history and Latin American history in particular. Sure. I started out in history as an undergraduate, but I wasn't working on Latin America. I I was educated in Canada, and I did a lot of British history and Indigenous history of Canada. And I would say what I liked about the field was its concreteness and its specificity. So I I liked understanding how contexts created ideas or created political change or whatever the subject was. Uh, And I didn't change to Latin America until after my undergraduate degree when I traveled in Brazil was the first place I went. And I really fell in love with the experience of living in Latin America um, and kind of shifted during my master's degree to uh, examining Latin American history instead of sticking uh, north of there. And I'd say that one of the things that especially intrigued me about Mexico in particular was uh, learning about the extent of sources that were available from both pre-Columbian period and also the early contact period which was uh, from an indigenous point of view. And that was, that was news to me and very, quite different from the context that I was more familiar with. Great. So now I want, us, um, I want you to tell us a little bit about how you came to the topic of this book in particular. In your preface, you began um, with a few sentences that captivated me as a reader. You say that you wanted to write a history of childbirth and contraception because you wanted to work on a topic that mattered to women and to Mexican women, but also to women outside of Mexico, a topic that matter both in the past and the present. Can you tell us a little bit about this and why you chose this topic for your book? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say I, w- I had been collecting material on this topic since i since early in my graduate career. And I was working on a history of religion in the colonial period. But while I was working on that book, every once in a while I'd come across uh, some material that dealt with medical history or dealt specifically with contraception or abortion. And I kind of, some of it I used in my first book, but I, I would file it away. And one of the things that so intrigued me in some of that first material was that it didn't seem as controversial as I thought it should be. So I'd find a case of a, a woman who confessed to having had an abortion and the Inquisition would just kind of gloss over that and move on to question her about something like divination. And given our current context, I kept thinking, well, why, are they, why don't they care about the abortion? Um, And the other thing that, you know, the other thing that was kind of a motivation to work on this was that I was keen to work on a topic that was immediately apparent in terms of its relevance to my own contemporary peers. I found a little bit when I worked on religion, as interesting as I found it, that when I would tell people I was working on these 17th and 18th century mystics, they just had no way to connect that to their lives. And I was interested in working on something that when I said I'm working on childbirth and also contraception, you know, people knew, people had an immediate connection. And it's a topic that's so central now uh, to the political world of the Americas and, and, and far beyond it. So those were all motivations. 
Yeah, and I believe you make this very clear in the book, and we'll discuss this probably at the end of the interview because this is how you finish um, the book. Uh, but maybe now we can dive in to the one of the main arguments of the book. So according to you, in the latter, in the later part of the 19th century, a change in this course of sexual honor and public virtue became more imperative for an increased sector of the country's female population. A discourse that wasn't quite or didn't quite exist before in the colonial period. So while in the colonial period, the state's uh, preoccupation with controlling reproduction focused almost exclusively on women of the elite in, during the Republican state in the 19th century, um, there was a bigger interest in controlling the population of a broader and, let's say, more popular sector of women. So mm -hmm. can you tell us about this change and how you link it to an article Um, written by Elizabeth Dore, in which she argues that the 19th century's liberalism did not represent an era of positive change uh, for women, but rather what she calls, quote unquote, one step forward, two steps back? Sure. So the, the beginning of this argument came from searching in colonial archives for material that treated abortion and infanticide. And One of the most striking things I found, and other historians who have worked in this area have found the same thing, was the real paucity of cases. So in the period, the entire colonial period, so 1521 to 1821, I found a mere um, 14 criminal investigations. And this is looking through you know, close to a dozen archives in Mexico. And it's something I've continued to do since even the book has come out. And I've been back to, um, or I've been to new archives and different state level archives and keep looking and keep not finding uh, these kinds of accusations. And it's the, there, so there's this absence of denunciation. There's a low uh, rate of conviction for the crimes when they are denounced. And it's also, It also struck me because it was much lower than in other contemporary places. So just to give a couple um, comparisons with European contexts, uh, the records of the Central High Court of Paris, which had jurisdiction over quite a large population of 8 to 12 million people in the same time period, so like 60 to 18 centuries, um, executed somewhere around 1,500 women for this crime. So, you know, it's a comparable population size in, in, in much higher numbers. So that, so one thing is like, why isn't it, why isn't the crime being prosecuted? Why isn't it being denounced comparably? And then the other change is this rising rate of denunciation and prosecution after independence. And that happened pretty gradually. So the... The archive, rec the archive that I use most exhaustively is the Tribunal Superior del Distrito Federal, which is the appellate court for cases originating in the capital city. And in the first five decades after independence, that court prosecuted one case for abortion and 19 for infanticide. But after we go to the end of the century, the numbers rise dramatically. So um, there are 79 cases for abortion and 83 for infanticide in the last three decades of the century. So it's not a, we're still talking about um, in absolute terms, we're not talking about thousands of cases. Uh, it's, you know, fewer than 200 cases, but in comparison to the 300 years that preceded it, when there are so few, then it's quite a dramatic rise. Uh, and it's also a dramatic rise in comparison to other crimes, for instance, homicide, which is which is prosecuted vigorously in the same time period in the late 19th century, but which is also prosecuted vigorously in the early colonial period um, and throughout the colony and early 19th century. So there is something that's happening with this crime that is distinctive. Uh, so that's that was the first thing that I looked at. Uh, and, and so that's one of the major questions that I'm examining is why are people not denouncing? Why are courts not prosecuting early on? And then there's a change. And 
the link to that I make to Elizabeth Doerr's, um the questions that she raises in the article you mentioned is is to link it to the presumption that people often have about the idea of progress um, and changes that are broadly associated with the 19th century, including secularization, so the, the diminishing power of the church and the associated liberal notion of um, the rise of the idea of education and public education, including education for women, and the ideas defending individual rights of different kinds. And those three ideas, secularization, individual rights, and education, people often make the assumption, well, that's got to be good for women, status must increase, there are positive changes associated with liberalism. So it's a, it's a question of kind of contrasting that expectation with something like, well, how did how did that translate in terms of people's uh, preoccupations with reproduction, which which society had greater scrutiny uh, of of women and their sexual and reproductive lives? And if we look at just these statistical evidence about these crimes, it seems like there's a lot more scrutiny in the 19th century than in the period before the rise of liberalism. Yes, and I believe this this first part of your argument actually show us and situate the, the Mexican case in a, in a broader debate because I believe different feminist um, women scholars have wondered whether liberalism was good or bad for women. And I think this, this first part of your argument, it's, it's so important because you situate Mexico in a broader debate and it's so interesting to see these numbers and the changes and continu continuities you show throughout the book. Um, Um, maybe now we can move to the second, kind of your second main argument that is related to the first one. And it's that this change in this discourse of sexual honor and public virtue is linked um, with that changing connection um, that me Mexicans crafted in the 18th and 19th centuries between reproduction and nation. And here again, we we found ourselves in a topic that has been broadly explored by, by scholars And, and you tell mm -hmm. us that, in particular, scholars in Mexico have found and demonstrated that after independence, reproduction and motherhood became a central concern for the Republican state, as uh, it happened in other Latin American republics. Yet, the connections between nation and reproduction predated independence. So can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between nation and reproduction and why this state incrementally expanded its medical and legal control over reproduction? So I think there are several things happening involving this question. Uh, one of them is within the field of medicine itself. And one of the things that's happening is the emergence of the field of the study of obstetrics and gynecology to become a legitimate area of medical inquiry, because it had been a, an area of medicine that was kind of below the purview of any respectable doctor, matters not talked about, not written about, and left to um, female practitioners who are then disparaged <laughs> for, for their lack of education or science. So there is this, this kind of shift that occurs through the 19th century of saying, actually, this field of medicine, far from being marginalized, should become perhaps one of the most important areas of medicine. Um, and that reasons for that change are not exclusively involving um, matters of medical history. They're also, of course, connected to um, changing ideas about the state's role in society. But we see a lot of you know very prominent changes happening. Um, and so some of the things that I mentioned is, for instance, um, that the first physician who's selected to represent Mexico in uh, the first International Medical Congress in Moscow, Moscow, A.J. Carvajal, was an obstetrician. Uh, that um, Francisco Flores, who is a, uh, a medical practitioner and also historian of medicine, and he, he writes this uh, bizarre tract that I talk about in the book um, called El Imen in Mexico. He, he writes other things as well. Uh, but he publishes that in 1885, and it's it's one of the works that's chosen to represent Mexico 
in the 1889 Paris World's Fair. Uh, so there's this like escalation of of concerns with medicine and 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 the whole process of it becoming a very important and recognized area of uh, medical practice. Um, so that's a, a shift that is one of the reasons why you know there's this this changing scrutiny and participation in uh, the field of reproduction. Um, I think another thing is uh, that the modern state across Latin America is after independence and in the process of creating state institutions in the 19th century is concerned with uh, populating the patria for economic, diplomatic, cultural reasons, with kind of stocking the country with a healthy population. So it's happening in conjunction with different kinds of public health measures. So there's a preoccupation with nation building, and that literally means with with, uh, ensuring that the population is healthy and um, is is densely populated. Uh, so that's another reason for the scrutiny on reproduction. And I think the third thing that's happening, uh, which is which is again to do with the break from Spanish colonial control, involves a different point, a different perspective that the state adopts to the population, where the constitution of the country is now its citizens. And previously were colonial subjects. So I think there's a it's a it's kind of a a point of I guess political theory, but the idea previously is that the the kind of population is deriving its status from its relationship to the crown as subjects. And after independence, there's nowhere outside of the country to look for the achievement of that status. It's going to happen from within. So there's a shift in thinking where reproduction, reproducing the population itself becomes a central endeavor that the state is concerned with. Yeah, and this comes through through the book, and it's a very important argument throughout. Um, but there's actually a third argument that you also develop in the book, and it's that Me- Mexico modifies polarizing and predominant historical narrative in which the development of modern obstetrical medicine is either presented as a triumph of modern science, um, what you call the positivist interpretation, or the obliteration or destruction of the labor and expertise of quote-unquote, the traditional midwife, um, what you also name uh, a feminist interpretation that emerged in the 1960s with the work of scholars such as Felix Brodsky, Ana Maria Carrillo, Luz Maria Hernandez, Barbara Duren, and Ludmila Jordanova. So here you argue that though both interpretations hold a kernel of truth, neither is entirely correct. Can you please tell us how, in the case of Mexico, a different picture emerged? Uh, and one that allows us to understand the experiences of Latin Americans' medical and scientific history in its own terms rather than as derivatives of European histories? So here again, I think there's a couple of things going on. Um, the first one I would say is, it isn't necessarily specific to Mexico, but is more about this the, the sort of competing narratives um, between you know the triumph of of positivism versus the retention of uh, pre pre Columbian midwives as as proto feminists, and I think that uh, part of what I was responding to was what I saw as either simplifications or romanticizations of both of those positions, and usually something that I was challenged by from reading individual experiences. So, for instance, when I um, read the writings of a famous 18th century Scottish obstetrician, I discuss him a little bit in my conclusion. His name was William Smelly, and he his work, work was circulated and recognized in New Spain. And he was somebody who was uh, did a lot of experimentation with things like obstetrical instruments I th- and could have the kind of reputation of being sort of representing the patriarchal medical establishment that sought to pathologize birth. But when I read his writings, I, I realized that that was such a 
a misrepresentation of, of how he saw what he was doing and actually what he did in practice. Because if anything, he was, he was urging for caution on all fronts and only to result, resort to the use of instruments, medical instruments to assert, uh, assist birth if everything else failed. And in all cases, if it was possible to let nature take its course, um, so I feel like, you know, his the way William Smelly wrote about childbirth would not be that different from the way a doula who was advocating for natural birth might write about it now. And, and on the other side, I saw examples. Um, I would read criminal trials, for instance, that had midwives appear sometimes to give their medical expertise. And one of the places they did that were was in rape trials including in the rape trials of what were often very young girls. And it would be, you know, I would be, I would be initially astounded to read cases where midwives would provide the assessment of whether a rape had occurred or not. Uh, And one of the things, one of the things that they do is they examine just the state of the body uh, and they're looking for evidence of struggle. And if they don't find evidence of struggle, they can't say it was a rape. They can't say it was forced. And those are the parameters in which they're working in. But I remember reading a trial of about a six-year-old girl who the midwife determines was not raped. And so then says she was obviously a, a participant by choice in the sexual practice in which she engaged. And I so again, there I thought, well, we can't we can't construct these assumptions about a midwife's position to her clients or to other uh, females um, out of a notion of a kind of romanticized portrait of the parameters in which they operated. So partly it was kind of checking the assumptions that we might make about both, say, doctors and midwives. Um, so that's a personal point about those figures. Um, but in, in broader terms, I think one of the things that is particularly distinctive to Mexico, but is also the case for other parts of Latin America in terms of medicine, was the fact that in the colonial period and through the 19th century, there is the remarkable endurance and persistence of very sophisticated pre-Columbian medical knowledge especially about the botanical world. And this is true for the field of obstetrics and also many other fields. And it's something that doctors recognized or, or doctors who were able to have a, a broader mind perhaps about it. But the perhaps the best known example of this is a man called Francisco Hernandez, who was the private physician to Philip II and was commissioned to go to the New World in 1570 to conduct a kind of inventory of the botanical world. And he was supposed to go for, I think the the journey was supposed to be about five years, and he was supposed to go to Mexico and also to Peru. And he never made it out of Mexico (laughs) because he was so overwhelmed by what he found and the extent of botanical knowledge, and also the variation of plant life. Um, So before he'd been to Mexico, he knew uh, from all his knowledge and from reading uh, the Greeks and Arab naturalists, uh, what was known in Europe at the time was about 600 species of plants. And in the 22 volumes he he wrote uh, about his findings in Mexico, he described 3,000 species of plants that he had encountered. And so it's it's the the variety of the botanical life and then the very sophisticated knowledge that medical practitioners had about this that is very um, distinctive about medical practice in this setting. And so in the case of obstetrics and, and the, the medicine surrounding childbirth, we find from very early colonial works Uh, how much midwives knew about treating different conditions from very serious ones to much more um, minor ones associated with pregnancy and with childbirth. So pre-Columbian midwives were able to perform embryotomies 
where the where the mothers survive. They uh, were able to treat for things like hemorrhoids. They had very effective oxytocins, which are hormones that stimulate labor. And and their knowledge of these things and their use of them uh, persists through the colonial period and is not erased. And people continue to use those medicines and seek those, those cures. So the march of European medicine dominating the notion that it's just sort of wiped out pre-existent knowledge it does not does not uh, describe the reality of the practice of medicine in the colonial period, or I think through the 19th century. And this leads us, um, I believe, to a historiographical current in which you've situated your work. And here I'm referring to a literature um, led by scholars such as Martha Few, Stephen Palmer, and Marcos Cueto, who have used concepts such as medical mestizaje or medical pluralism to describe a Latin American medical landscape. Can you tell us, can you tell us what these concepts mean and why you think they're the most accurate descriptors to understand Latin America's medical history? I, I think you kind of mentioned some of those reasons, but I, I, I would like um, you to kind of tell our, our listeners a little bit about this uh, literature in which like, your work is part of. Okay. So yeah, the term medical mestizaje refers to the idea of the the practice of medicine in the colonial period and beyond it involving the mixture of European and indigenous traditions in medicine. Uh, you mentioned Martha Few and she has a recent book called For All of Humanity and she's looking at 18th century medical practice in Guatemala. And she has some great examples in that book of this kind of blending of European and indigenous traditions. And I think one of the, one of the interesting practices or interesting um, aspects of medical mestizaje is it can be personnel coexisting. It could be the idea that Europeans adopt practices or knowledge from indigenous practitioners or the inverse can happen. So it's not usually the creation of something new that blends, uh, like some new remedy that takes a little Europe and a little new world. It's you, it, but it's the, the kind of coexistence of personnel or practices and, and people passing knowledge back and forth across ethnicities. Uh, so for instance, one of the, People who I write about, I use uh, his research quite a bit as a prominent early 20th century physician and historian in Mexico, Nicolas Leon. Uh, and he was a also a medical practitioner and he describes how he was apprenticed to a midwife so he could learn obstetrics properly, even though it was something he was taught in at, at the university level at that time in medical school. But he realized that if he really wanted to understand obstetrics, he'd better go out and, and spend his time with a midwife. Um, so there's examples and evidence from writers like Leon of midwives influencing and teaching physicians. Um, so practices like the external turning of a fetus through manual manipulation, which is a practice that midwives in Mexico had been doing before conquest, but also, and, and as was also the case in Europe. Uh, and doctors begin to adopt that practice of trying to turn fetuses on the outside, but they, they learn that from the women that they're working alongside. So it's not, it's not always um, a, a kind of oppositional relationship. There's also, there are also contexts in which there's clearly cooperation, although sometimes there is um, definitely professional rivalry between those groups. So one example of the, of say Europeans adopting uh, indigenous medicine is, is this thing that I mentioned, I talked about how pre-Columbian midwives used a very effective oxytocin. And there are several of them that they use in the pre-Columbian period. But the one I came across the most often is called Siwapatli. And it's uh, the aster flower. And the it has the effect of really stimulating and producing violent contractions. And people used it to both 
provoke an, a miscarriage. So I think it's the most commonly used uh, strategy of, of having an abortion is to provoke an early miscarriage in the colonial in the 19th century. Uh, but they also used it to initiate contractions for uh, in smaller doses to initiate contractions for a stalled labor at the time of delivery. Uh, and so the medical establishment in Mexico in the 19th century is very disdainful of Siwapatli. I found a lot of references where they're chastising people for using it or talking about how dangerous it is. But then I also found a medical uh, writer who I've mentioned already, Francisco Flores, talking about how it could also be used under, you know, perfect conditions if it's strictly regulated. He writes, it's Extract is recommended and the solution of its active ingredient at the same dose as the analogs prepared with centanol, which is a centanol de cornicio, is a, a substance that Europeans had been using. But there's this acknowledgement in his tract that, that, that even the medical establishment under certain circumstances will use siwapatli. So that's an example of this kind of uh, practice of medical mestizaje, where personnel are using um, solutions from the other culture. Okay, so now before moving to the chapters of the book, I have a question to you about sources. So you say initially that you wanted to focus on regular experiences of childbirth and contraception. But because of the nature of the sources, that means what gets recorded and the type of documents that we have today uh, about the past that were written in the past, you focus mostly on birth irregularities. Can you explain to our listeners uh, what this means? Right. Sure. Yeah. The um, the chapter that I I. St- that I include about, particularly about monstrous births, uh, was actually the first chapter I started writing for this book. And that happened because I was in Seville for a conference at about the time I started working on this book. And uh, I stayed for several weeks because I thought I would take advantage of access to the Archivo General de Indias. And I was in the archive. So that's the, the archive that is the kind of main a clearinghouse of, of administrative records for all of Latin America in the colonial period. And I couldn't find birth anywhere. <laughs> I was, I, I had this experience of, you know, try, I remember talking to some of the archivists and I'm looking for childbirth. I'm looking for midwives. I'm looking. And, and they kind of laughed and said, you know, you're not going to find that here. Uh, I found a few things. I found records of midwives. I found I found materials which I have not used relating to the first um, Casa de Maternidad that was built in, in Havana in the late 18th century. Um, so I would find things from time to time, but I just couldn't I couldn't find what I was looking for because it was it was below the purview of the administrative record. And I think it's it's also part of this discussion of how birth becomes a central preoccupation in the 19th century. And before that, it's it's everywhere, but never discussed and not recorded. So, you know, I kept thinking all these administrators, uh, their wives, daughters, and, and lovers and sisters are all giving birth, but they're not never recording it, never talking about it. But the one thing I resorted to doing in the AGI uh, was to start reading the... Um, copies of the Gazeta de Mexico, which is one of the first medical publications in the New World. Or, sorry, the, the um, Gazeta de Mexico covers all sorts of matters, but included in it are discussions of, of medicine. And in those, I found um, these, d- these descriptions of what contemporaries called monstrous births. And so I started tracking and going through all the gazettas and looking for them and seeing how people wrote about them. But that was an experience of of saying, what are the kinds of births that make it to the administrative record? And and the ones that are recorded that leave a trace for historians to find, especially in the earlier period, are those that are unusual. They're unusual either because they were medically unusual, like what 
what people called monstrous births, and that included and also included in the gazettes were twins or triplets or or multiple births. And then there are things where there was some kind of um, concern about criminal action. So that's why abortion and infanticide shows up um, or cases where people are accusing midwives of criminal misconduct. So those kinds of things show up. Uh, But it's a topic that, you know, the discussion of it, if we're kind of trying to trace where and why does it show up um, for the colonial period, it, it really only shows up when it's unusual. And then in the modern period, because there's more public preoccupation for reasons I've already discussed with reproduction and population, then it becomes more broadly part of a public discussion, coincident with things like the creation of the first maternity hospitals. So it's this movement from like absence in the public record to a central concern of the public record. Yeah. And I think this, I mean, your answer just show us how even if historians have certain ideas or projects in their minds, the archive shapes the the outcome because it depends on on what you can find, on Mm -hmm. the type of documents that you can find or that are available or the type of things that get recorded. And so I I think that that, uh, is very clearly shown in this book and it's very helpful for historians and for people interested in history in general to understand how history writing works. Okay, so now let's move on to the chapters. Um, To flag it to our readers, the book is divided in three parts, organized thematically rather than chronologically. So part one is titled Purity and Productivity, Understanding Virginity, Conception and Pregnancy. Here, you analyze how the concepts of virginity, conception, and pregnancy change throughout the period covered by the book, and in comparison to other topics analyzed in subsequent chapters as abortion, monstrous births, or infanticide, you conclude that many aspects of Mexicans' idea about virginity, conception, and pregnancy remain somewhat stable, um, though, well, there were some changes. Can you tell us about this? In particular, can you tell us about um, how they increase professionalization of mid- midwifery and obstetrics, something that you've kind of mentioned, uh, didn't necessarily entail that midwives were banned from providing pro- reproductive care, nor did it disallow collaboration between midwives and, and an increasing number of trained doctors? Well, I think um, there, there's several things going on, but uh, one of them is that Initially, so like the the state's efforts to regulate midwifery date back to about 1750, and they're really just ignored. Uh, So the state says, you know, only licensed midwives should be allowed to practice, and here are the conditions under which a midwife can be licensed. And then when we look at the colonial period, we see like two, (laughs) two are licensed, and yet we have if we find records, if we find allusions to childbirth in those cases where it comes up in, and usually in criminal trials or inquisition trials, or sometimes in, in writings by physicians, it's clear everyone's saying, well, people are going to midwives. That's who they're going to. So the population, it's just one of those cases where the population uh, doesn't really care what the state is is declaring will be the case. They they continue to prefer to use the practitioners that had always been overseeing birth. And there also aren't that many doctors available. Like so, you know, uh, demographically, most of society is being treated by curanderos uh, or midwives or barbers or surgeons. And very few people um, are, are actually being treated by doctors and physicians. So, and there aren't that many of them in the, in the capital. And I think there's, there is some gradual change over the course of the 19th century. So a lot of different medical centers start offering obstetrics to midwives or a course in midwives in the course of the 19th century, mostly after about 1850, 1860. 
And so there are more people, more women attending, more women graduating. But I think the population it continues to not feel that strongly about whether or not somebody has or has not got the legitimate paperwork. Um, I think people keep attending midwives and asking them to attend births because, you know, the proof is in the pudding. If, if everyone in a community says, oh, this is who you go to, and, and that person is known, that's who, that's who people continue to go to. So, yeah, professionalization and the kind of attempt to exclude traditional practitioners is not very effective. And I think that like the state also seems, even though there's declarations about, well, we got to keep unlicensed midwives from practicing. I haven't found that they're very, they don't come down very hard on people when they discover it. Like I've, I've continued to do research since the book's publication on on the history in the 19th century. And I found a lot of cases where they interview someone and it turns out it's someone who's engaged in you know, professional practice of midwifery, but who's not licensed. And sometimes they, you know, sometimes they sort of find them or tell them what you need. To, you're going to be banned from doing this for six months, but they're, they really don't come down that hard on them. So I think that's one thing is it's just the persistence that's driven by who who chooses to to go and have like who, who do people choose to have deliver their children or care for them in these matters and i guess the other thing is that the, the other comment i make about the persistence of ideas about pregnancy and childbirth that came from just like reading the medical texts that are produced in the period between the, you know, started reading things from the 16th century or even the 15th century, and then up to through the 19th century. And I found that in terms of the kind of counsel that is offered about what does childbirth look like? And again, I don't have, I only have the, those kinds of texts from the point of view of institutional medicine. I don't know what uh, individual midwives were instructing one another about you know, in, when they were being trained uh, in the field. But uh, from the text, from the institutional medicine point of view, there isn't very much change in that time period. So, you know, I'm always interested in, as, as all historians are, in change and constancy. And that was one area in which I found, like, the counsel about what you should do to prevent a miscarriage or what you should expect or what are the signs of pregnancy all of that kind of literature really doesn't change very much. And it doesn't even change very much into the 20th century. Yeah. So if in this part, in part one, you show kind of continuities, I think parts two and three um, show more transformations. So let's, let's start with part two here. Um, this one is titled The Hidden History of Contraception, Abortion, and Infanticide. And this section is central to your argument about how liberalism didn't necessarily entail progress for women. So here you show through criminal cases that during the late 19th century, there was an increased concern within community members in denouncing crimes of infanticide and abortion. An interest that didn't quite exist in the colonial period. And it's something you ju you mentioned in the first couple of questions I made. But here you also showed that the state showed high levels of tolerance and leniency toward these crimes. And you kind of mentioned that as well. But can you tell us why communities were, um, to put it in a way, harsher on women or while judges were more lenient or tolerant? I mean... I will say that that's a very good question, and I will have to admit that I don't feel entirely satisfied with the answer I have for it at the moment. So it's something I'm work. I mentioned I'm still working on this topic. So I'm working precisely on the issue of when, why, and how did abortion, and it turns out infanticide, because sometimes the distinction between the two isn't that clear. Why does it become prohibited? Why is it? Why does it become stigmatized? What? Why and when does it become seen at the community level as a crime? And so I'm I'm still trying to kind of piece that up. One thing I will say is, yeah, that the state. Uh, I was repeatedly struck by the issue of what I saw as the kind of 
sympathy, well, sympathy might be too strong a word, but the, the kind of benefit of the doubt that judges extend to those accused of this crime. I think several things are going on there, but one of them is that I think we, we have inherited an idea about how, what, you know, what was the state of the judiciary? How did the law operate in Mexico? And, you know, at the present time, in our time, people have a very cynical view of it, you know, in some ways for good reason. It seems to be a, a, a state in terms of the prosecution of criminal justice that is, has some big problems. And so people, I think, project that onto the past and say, well, the judges must have always been corrupt. They must have been ignorant. Who knows what they were, why and how they were making their judgments. And I, I've been struck by the extent to which judges attempted to apply the law and consider the evidence and that they really take seriously the whole issue of innocent until proven guilty. That's not an idea that Mexico encountered for the first time in 1992. They, uh, they, the burden of proof has to be absolutely overwhelming. And so infanticide and abortion are both very private crimes. There aren't usually witnesses. And in the absence of a confession, there's very little that could, you know, make a definitive proof that it wasn't a, a miscarriage. And that's usually the argument women made and judges are usually sympathetic to it. So some of it involves understanding how the, how justice is operating. In my the evidence I've looked at is that it seemed like it was operating a lot better than or a lot more in a much more fair way than we have often assumed. Um, so that's that's one thing, in which explains kind of the whole issue of why is there such why are there these higher rates of. Um, or lower rates of conviction than than we might have expected. Because I and I and I often found this like I'd read a trial and I think somebody's accused of having drowned her newborn, and I'd start reading the trial and think, well, absolutely, she drowned the newborn. And then the judge will say, you know, we don't know. She might have the baby might have just fell into the river and she fished it out, and so we can't convict. So they often were more extended the benefit of the doubt to a greater degree than, than I was prepared to do when I was reading the documents. But then is the question of why do communities start denouncing women? And this is the part I, I am trying to investigate now. And I think I would say it, I think that I would say that we are starting to see a change in people's expectations and associations about gender that start involving ideas about maternity and ideas about what is expected of women in terms of their sexual lives that is that is novel to the 19th century and so this is this is part of the argument about uh, sexual virtue for the you know, being a preoccupation for the lower classes of the population in a way that was not a central concern necessarily in the colonial period. So I think there's a shift that is happening there, but I can't, uh, I think that's about as strongly as I can put it for the moment. Well, I'm sure we will hear sometime in the future some of your reflections about this. But for now, I think this section is it's super interesting and important in kind of demonstrating the one of the main arguments of your book. But now let's move to part three, which is titled Populating the Patria and focuses on monstrous births, obstetrics and gynecology and birth. Um, this is probably one of the most fascinating parts of the book. Uh, and you kind of have said something about monstrous birth, but I, I want you to tell... Um, our listeners a little bit about the changes that you see in this period, because you start chapter five with one case of conjoined twins of Guanajuato in 1785, and another case, a creature, quote unquote, born in Sonora in 1893, and you show that the reactions about this monstrous birth were super different. Um, so can you tell us how these ideas 
about monstrosity or abnormality, quote unquote, again, and how they change so much in this roughly like a hundred year period. And how is this related to changes in um, gynecology and obstetrics? Yeah, there's a lot going on there. The So the monstrous births are the, the ones that I began reading about in the colonial period come from the, the notices from the Gazeta de Mexico that I mentioned. And the thing that I was struck by in those was I expected to read about how people disdained them and thought they were horrific. And actually, the way the, the news pieces are recorded is with a kind of sense of pride and wonder about the miraculous productions of nature in the new world. And so I connected all of this to a sort of discourse of criollo patriotism or sort of pride of place that's occurring in the late colonial period in Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America and is a response to the discourse that's coming from Europe especially associated with writers of the Enlightenment and the idea of the New World as a place that is infertile and that is degenerate in its natural productions. And so it's like this kind of counter position that is developed in Mexico. And it's it's quite explicit in the Gazeta notices. And then I found, first of all, I will say that I, I thought, okay, so we found these and they, they literally call... The, the babies they're describing, monsters, monstruosos. And I, um, I thought, well, that language must cease in the, in the 18th century. It's not going to show up anymore. And so I, I didn't even begin by examining for it in the 19th century. And then at one point while I was working on the book, I had access to an extensive newspaper database that, that drew out a whole lot of uh, Mexican publications from across the country, and I was just going through it and looking for stuff on maternity hospitals or infanticide or all my other subjects. And on a whim, I typed, I typed in, I could search it by keyword, which was fantastic. And I typed in monsters, and I found all these records from the 19th century of, of what were still being called monstrous births. So that was first a revelation to me. Um, and then later, I, I discovered um, this, they didn't use the term monsters for this, but there was actually a, they called them anomalous births. So there was a salon de anomalias, uh, like a birth normality uh, salon in the National Museum that coincided with Mexico hosting the first meeting of the um, Americanistas, the academic conference in, and it's like 1897. So this um, fascination with birth abnormalities and what continue to be called monsters carries on in the 19th century. But as you point out, there starts being a change. So I found that the language in the public records in, in, in the newspaper accounts in the 19th century becomes very negative and is no, is no longer talking about these, these births as something wonderful and, and something to be proud of, but it has a lot of trappings and associations of revulsion and shame and, and horror. But um, in medical, uh, there's, there, what's happening is the rise of a medical field called teratology, which is the study of birth abnormalities. And it's, it's an international field that really takes off first in France. So people, Mexican physicians are reading the French uh, writers and then very influenced by them. Um, but they, ha and they have a kind of different attitude about birth abnormalities. It, that is, it's not exactly the same as the colonial period, but it is much more reverential and respectful. Uh, and they, there's, I mean, there's a few things going on. One thing is they, they, they cease to see birth abnormalities as caused by God or by the natural world of like the environmental contributors that that seem to be the source of of that those kinds of creations in the colonial period, and they start thinking it it's got to be to do with the woman's body. So they start being much more focused on the conditions of gestation and development in the womb. 
So that's all part of the kind of rise of the field of obstetrics. And then there's also this very specific interpretation that is really um, adapted by most uh, Mexican teratologists, especially a fellow I write about quite a bit, Juan Maria Rodriguez. And, and that is this idea that comes from one of the French doctors of what's called arrested development. And I, I was like, arrested development? It's not just a critically acclaimed television policy. <laughs> uh, it's actually this, um, this medical theory um, that explained monstrosity by saying that embryos in development all go through these phases of, of development. Uh, and so that we all go through a, a moment of monstrosity at some point in the fetus's development. And then some of the fetuses are just frozen there and that's it, and then develop, but never move on from that one moment. So this is this very uh, important medical theory originating in like the 1830s, 40s with um, Etienne Geoffrey Santelaire, but Mexican doctors, you know, think, adopt this. And so that's how they're explaining it. And one of the things I thought was interesting about that idea of arrested development is it is a kind of, um, em- it involves a kind of embracing of monstrosity instead of an exclusion. It's not the idea that there are some monsters and they're outside of us and we're separate from them. It's like we all are part of monstrosity, but some of us stay there. And so it's this sort of embracing of a, the idea of a spectrum of creation instead of um, like an exclusion of creation. And I think some of that has to do with why the, the medical literature and something like the Salon des Anomalias exists, because they see it as part of the production of the Mexican populace rather than trying to exclude it from that, that populace. Well, this part is truly fantastic, and I invite our listeners to look at it and the, the whole book, which is, um, I, I found it so interesting, and I learned so much. So, Thank you so much. Yeah, I loved your book. Um, so now, um, as I've mentioned to you, and it, this is perfect because your conclusion does this, uh, but I've Im- started implementing a question about how your history, uh, the story you're telling us speaks to the present. And this is what you do in the conclusion. So just tell us a little bit about this. How does reproduction and its discontents uh, tell us about or teaches us things for the present? Well, I think it, it, I talk about it in, ver- in a couple of very broad terms. Um, and one of them is, I think it, it, it sort of addresses the, the fault we often, all of us, engage in of generational hubris, by which I mean that the notion that we're living in the best time there was. And people often do that in terms of gender and say, well, thank God I didn't live such and such a place when, when women had it so much rougher than now. And I don't, I mean, and I, there are ways in which I think, it, you know, I'm glad I'm a woman now than in other times, but I think it's, it's erroneous to, to believe that we have it the best in, in all ways. And um, one of them is in this matter of who has a right to make decisions about reproduction and scrutiny of, of reproduction And I think it's really interesting that in the colonial period, it really doesn't seem to have, despite it being a Catholic society, uh, it doesn't seem to be something that people considered anybody else's business. Either they didn't think it was anyone else's business, but the woman involved, or it just didn't matter enough for them to to think, well, if so-and-so was pregnant and doesn't now shows no signs of either having given birth or or uh, are there being a child, it doesn't occur to them that it's their their right or their within their jurisdiction or that it's something worth raising. And so that very much contrasts with our current political moment where um, everybody seems to think that they have the right to weigh in on not just whether a woman should see a pregnancy through to term or not, but how and to what extent they have the right to control reproduction. I mean, it's, it's become something that like just the notion that this is up to the person for whom this will be happening. 
you know, is, is that's not, that's not a position that well, that a good portion of our population believes. So it sort of challenges that idea about uh, assumptions we make on the past and, and what is, what is accepted and what is, what is prescribed at different points. Uh, so that's one very broad way that I connect this research to our own present. And another one that I talk about in the conclusion involves um, the material that came out of this book that involved moments for me where I thought, ah, this, what it, this is what it means when we talk about the social construction of reality. So that, that phrase is something, you know, all historians believe, I think, and are, are interested in, but the extent to which we think about how our circumstances determine the, the way we think about the body or the way we think about sexuality or the way we think about gender, you know, to a very dramatic extent that I think that in the, in the realm of gender studies, the body is still a place that people are resistant to thinking there's a construct because we're all, you know, we're products of the enlightenment. We're very tied to, um, the idea about uh, exper- experiential knowledge, and uh, if I see it, it's and I can touch it, that it's there. And so there were a lot of moments in this book where I really appreciated how a different time period, not just perceived the body differently, but how the body was different in, in a different time period. So one example, I'll just give one example that involves the topic of infanticide and abortion was this, um, you know, those are two acts that in our own day are obviously very distinctive. Like uh, it's a whole matter, uh, most importantly, from a a point of view of criminal legislation that is really, really different. Um, Does does the death happen before or after exiting the fetus? So that's a distinction that we, you know, we absolutely found ourselves on. And uh, in the colonial period, that distinction seems like it was much more fuzzy. Uh, So people describe the whole issue of like inside and outside the womb differently. And I found that in criminal cases, the, um, the judges and witnesses would often kind of move back and forth between describing an act as an abortion, the term they use is aborto, um, for both miscarriage and and what we think of as abortion, but they they in many cases would use that term interchangeably with infanticide. Um, so that was an example of seeing, oh, this is this is just a totally different understanding of the body, which means that the body is different. It's not just it's not just how they see it. It is different. So I feel like one of the things that really connects for me to uh, to the present is the way that material from this book continued to assist me in in challenging the naturalization of gender ideas and ideas about the body. No, and I think those two things are great takeaways from the book for for readers and listeners of this podcast because I think both of those things come through uh, very clearly and powerful in the book. So after taking a lot of your time. Uh, just briefly tell us what are you working on right now and what are we expecting from you? <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I decided to carry on working on the topic of abortion and infanticide because as, as your question about the uh, disparate reactions between the populace and courts uh, revealed, I, I felt like I wasn't done with it. So one of the things I decided to do was take my examination of this topic to have a geographical, like a more geographically focused uh, approach. And that was partially because of looking at current day Mexico. So I begin the book by mentioning the fact that in 2007, Mexico City passed legislation to legalize uh, first trimester abortion. And in response, um, all the other states in Mexico have, have, to a greater or lesser extent, really shored up their anti-abortion legislation. 
so it's it's there's kind of been a reaction outside of the Capitol to that passage. Um, but they haven't all done it at the same to the same extent. So some states are more lenient. Tlaxcala, um, for instance, uh, like about a third of the country has more permissiveness in in how it is currently prosecuting abortion. So there's no penalty applied to women in Tlaxcala who seek abortions when it um, presents a danger to their own lives or in cases of rape. And then there are more intermediate locations. And then there are places like Veracruz. And Veracruz, the state of Veracruz, is now the most um, anti-abortion state in Mexico. And it passed legislation in 2016, making abortion really prohibited under any circumstances. Um, so I was first I was thinking about that, those reactions and wondering if they had it, like what was the history behind those different positions that state legislatures came to. Um, and I looked at other things like um, some of the states in Mexico, their the current language of their abortion laws is an absolute um, reproduction of the laws of the 1871 state criminal codes. So they, they've just taken that language. So that was interesting to me too, the places that have <laughs> looked back and said, actually what we did in 1871 is still works just fine and it will just verbatim use the language. Um, so I kind of wanted to see what has been happening at different levels. Um, so I, I spent a summer in the Yucatan going through that that criminal archives of those crimes there. And then I spent time in Puebla and um, Tlaxcala gathering information. I want to go to Veracruz, but um, I was talking to different archive, uh, archivists and historians there, and they all claim that they have no material <laughs> until the 20th century. Everyone says, oh, there are great fires, there are great fires, we don't have it. So I haven't... Um, I haven't been to Veracruz, but I I have to figure out if there's somewhere else in Veracruz that that has the material I'd like to look at. Um, so I'm I'm gather right now. I'll say I'm gathering my information. I have a couple of shorter pieces coming out uh, that is based on this material, but um, it, it my gestational period for a book is ten years, so. <laughs> Um, don't hold your breath. It'll be here uh, by, uh, by yeah, before I'm 60, we'll have another one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very looking forward to reading that book and the articles. Thank you, Lisette. And, and Nora, it was great having you. Thank you for a great interview. Oh, thank you so much for your time. <laughs>